You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Sometimes it feels as if Lent is just one long road. We are still weeks away from Easter, but the telltale signs are all around. The gift of a few days of sunshine and blue skies hints at the nearness of spring, and it seems that not even a pandemic can keep chocolate Easter bunnies from finding their ways onto grocery store shelves. But here we are, and we're still stuck in the wilderness of Lent week three. And we're finding ourselves face to face with even more passages of scripture which challenge our conventional ways of thinking about and practicing our faith. Our readings began this morning with the voice of God thundering from on high, echoing from Mount Sinai down to the Hebrew people. This is the God who has led them out of slavery in Egypt, the one who saved them from the brutal military power of Pharaoh. And now newly released from their bondage, they find themselves out in the wilderness and they've already messed things up. They were worried about Moses' prolonged absence up on the mountain with God because they remained fearful. They were unsure of this God who had freed them and they were anxious when Moses, their protector, disappears. So seeking something to give them security, they gathered up their gold, they melted it all down, and they created a golden calf, which looked like a proper religion, with fancy images, just like the religions of Egypt that they had left behind. Which is such a tragedy when you think about it. Having tasted freedom, how quickly in a time of pressure they are eager to take back up the bonds of their oppression yet again. And even as they are admiring the work of their hands and dancing around it, a voice booms from the sky saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. This is the beginning of a new story. It is a story written by a liberating God. This is no longer a story of slave people, but a narrative of folks emancipated, a story of a people freed from the oppressive powers of Pharaoh. They are no longer under Pharaoh's thumb. And over time, they will learn that life with this God of the Exodus is under different rules. The voice thunders with the promise that the realm of God is ruled by a vision of freedom and justice. 
The Ten Commandments are what Walter Brueggemann calls, quote, strategies for staying emancipated once you get away from Pharaoh. You see, recidivism is hard to avoid when the only life you've ever known is that of a slave under the oppression of Pharaoh. Old patterns, no matter how constricting they might be, are so difficult to break. First, it's vital that we understand when we journey with this liberating God, we leave behind the gods of Egypt. The idols, the graven images, everything that has laid claim on us before no longer has any hold on us now. With all of those living in the realm of God, instead we give honor to the God who is the source of our freedom. That's the first commandment at its core, honoring the source of our freedom. Secondly, liberated people will honor the Sabbath. They will take up the pattern set out by God at creation's beginning. One day out of seven, we will set aside from work. We will free ourselves from labor. Take a moment to think how revolutionary that is. As people who follow the God of the Exodus, we refuse to be defined solely by our work. And rest from work in this new way of living together is not just for the elites. It's not just for those who live lives of leisure. Everyone participates in this revolutionary act of rest. God commands everyone, all y'all, you, your sons and daughters, your slaves, your work animals, everyone ceases from your labor. And not just those who had been in bondage in Egypt, everyone, even the sojourner, the immigrant, the refugee who now lives among the people, everyone sets down their tools. Everyone embraces a day of rest, a reminder of our connection and our partnership with the God of creation and of our freedom from Pharaoh's slavery. In this liberated community, we honor God and we honor Sabbath. Those are the foundational commandments, and the ones that follow after that speak to community. They cover how we are to treat our family and our neighbors, treat them all with dignity and honor. And then the focus widens on relationships in the larger community. There are prohibitions against violence. Neighbors should not be the victims of our own greed. The Ten Commandments are setting up a new way of being for the people. They are freed from the power of Pharaoh, freed from all that has enslaved them, released from their isolation from one another. They are freed from fear. They're freed to live in the ways of this liberating God because the commandments are indeed strategies for staying emancipated. The questions before us today are how much are we allowing ourselves to be ruled by the ways of Pharaoh? Who is laying claim on us today? To whom do we yield power over our lives? 
just as the Hebrew slaves were forced to make bricks for Pharaoh's projects, can we consider the ways in which we consent to slavery in our own lives? As we are pulled into an endless cycle of production, even as our families, our health, and our communities suffer. Pharaohs, you see, seek to keep slaves busy, keep them occupied with their own narrow concerns, fearful of losing what little they have, because when slaves are fearful and busy and anxious, it means they have no time or opportunities for solidarity with other slaves. It's a power move. And I know we don't like to think of ourselves as slaves, yet it is not hard to see the ways in which we are bound and enslaved, often of our own choosing. We submit ourselves to the worship of commerce, to economic systems or political parties, and like those frightened Hebrew ex-slaves throwing their gold into the fire, we too fashion gods we imagine will protect us. We embrace every idol of the market, of racism, of nationalism, of sexism, offered freedom through Christ. Too often we choose the bondage of the gods we know instead. We can take this framework from Exodus. And we can take it and apply it to Paul's letter that we heard to the church in Corinth. And we can see it as an invitation to consider the ways in which people are still living under Pharaoh. Paul writes his letter to a church in conflict. We know it's split by turmoil. It is hopelessly committed to the divisions that are in their community. And each side is disdainful of those with whom they disagree. Sound familiar? Paul's first move is to knock them off their guard. The message of the cross is foolishness, Paul proclaims, and then he throws in some stereotypes just to make his point. He says the Jews keep looking for the next sign, for miracles of power as in the days of old. And he said, well, the Greeks, they're always searching for wisdom, this great display of intellect in the tradition of the philosophers. But God, on the other hand, Paul proposes, enters into the world with weakness, not with great power. We see God's love breaking in and being poured out on a cross. The cross, an instrument of execution, a sign of failed rebellion against the pharaohs of the world. The cross embodies what no one really thinks of as wisdom, doesn't it? Now, if you're engaged in a conflict, and folks have chosen sides, when us and them have been defined really well, when everyone is entrenched in their positions, the last thing you want is someone coming in and casting doubt on your own wisdom. Because nobody wants to hear that their reasoning may be faulty. And that's exactly what Paul does. He cautions the church to be careful whose wisdom they are giving credence to. What gods have they crafted for themselves? 
Because after all, Paul says, God's foolishness is out of step with the world's wisdom. God's foolishness, we know, seeks to change the world through a few fishermen. To feed a crowd with just a few fishes and loaves of bread. God's foolishness reaches across ethnic lines to help a beaten man on the side of the road, embraces the son who ran away with all of his inheritance. God's foolishness seeks to defy the powers of Pharaoh and the might of Caesar. God's foolishness stubbornly chooses to bless peacemakers and mourners, to bless those who show mercy and those who go to bed hungry at night. God's foolishness breaks into the world through the son of a peasant girl, born in a barn, raised in obscurity, beloved by peasants, scorned by the establishment until he is broken and hanging lifeless on a cross. This foolishness of the cross is not the way of Pharaoh. It's not the way of our systems of government or our political parties or the prevailing theories of economics. It is, however, the liberating way the church is called to live. And during Lent, we are forced to ask ourselves, well, how's that going? Is the way of the cross the way of the church? Or have we lost what it means to live the folly of the cross? Now, either of these two scripture readings from Exodus and from Corinthians would be enough, more than enough to challenge us today, but it is difficult to turn our gaze away from Jesus in today's gospel reading. So let's see if we can hold these three texts in conversation with one another. We now shift for a few weeks from the Gospel of Mark to John's Gospel for the rest of Lent, and our reading comes near the beginning of John's Gospel. And it's helpful to remember that John differs greatly from the other three. John constructs his story of Jesus by highlighting signs of Jesus's identity, and there are seven of them. The first sign that John offers is the miracle of changing water to wine at a wedding in Cana. And here today we have the second sign in Jesus's ministry. It is Passover. And Jesus and his disciples have gone up to Jerusalem with the masses of faithful pilgrims and the whole city's abuzz, we can imagine. People are streaming into the city to celebrate Passover, that great celebration of the exodus, of liberation from Pharaoh, of freedom from slavery in Egypt. So let's keep in mind the fullness of liberation that that remembrance holds. Now, in the other Gospels, we would be reading these descriptions of traveling to Jerusalem for Passover as pointing to Jesus' final days before his crucifixion. But this story in John's Gospel is told at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It comes right after the sign of turning water into wine. Because for John, this dust up in the temple is a revelation of Jesus' glory. Jesus is embodying a new way of being. The commonwealth of God will not be contained in old wineskins. It cannot be controlled by old practices. Wake up and watch out, John's telling us as he's prone to do, because the word of God is walking 
in our midst. And John, the driving out of the money changers from the temple, serves not as the last straw before Jesus' arrest and execution, as it does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's narratives. It's right here at the beginning of the story, as if Jesus is throwing down a gauntlet. John is weaving a theological story for us here in this second sign of Jesus' identity. We are being invited to see Jesus as a prophet of the Lord, joining a long line of prophets who have pointed a condemning finger at the religious establishment of their day. With the Passover as the backdrop, We find Jesus in the courts of the majestic temple in that sacred place, the dwelling place of the liberating God. Now, it's a temple that was built by Herod the Great in 20 BCE to win over the people. And he designed it to rival the beloved temple of Solomon of old. And it's a symbol of a power play. It's a key part of his focus on infrastructure. He's wielding the power of Rome with a homespun twist to play to the religious values of the people. He's trying to tap into their hopes and their fondest memories and traditions. And this massive building project was still in process in Jesus's day. There in the house of God, Jesus forces the question. You're celebrating liberation, Jesus says, so look around. In what ways have religious institutions stood in the way of the covenant of God with the people given long ago on Mount Sinai? That covenant with Moses and the people, the one which begins with people turning away from the gods of the world and following the God of freedom. The one which sets a whole pattern of wholeness and shalom in which the people are no longer shackled by labor but are freed to live fully. The one in which human relationships are nurtured, in which individuals are respected and honored as beings in the image of God. Put simply for us in our situation, the question is, has the church aligned with Pharaoh or with God? Have we claimed our own wisdom and in doing so rejected the foolishness of God? Now, we know that religious folk don't take too kindly to their institutions or their practices being challenged. We never do. We huff. And we puff. And so did those folks listening to Jesus. They demanded a sign from him. And in response, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now in John's storytelling, those who don't follow Jesus always seem to misunderstand the meaning of what he says. It's a regular pattern in the gospel. So those good religious folk who have invested everything they have in the status quo respond accordingly. But that's ridiculous. We've been hard at work building this temple for 46 years. Now, there's a little more irony at play here because by the time the gospel is written, the temple has been destroyed. At least for 20 years, it's been destroyed, if not more. And John's readers would have known this. 
John's got something bigger in mind, and he sets that out at the start of the story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, the prologue to the gospel sings, because Jesus is claiming that the dwelling place of God is in him. That this is a new thing. That God resides not in our grand edifices, not in our perfect creeds, not in our carefully constructed ministry plans. The dwelling place of God is in none of those things. It is in Jesus. And where's Jesus? Jesus is on the margins with the poor, with the cast aside, the forgotten, with all those who have been broken by the powers of the world. Which means if the church is not with God in the margins, if we've abandoned the cross and instead taken up the trappings of glory and power of Pharaoh, then we're left with nothing but crumbling monuments to our own folly and dollar store idols of our own creation. Today's scripture provide words of caution and possible direction for us. We would do well to ponder our allegiances. Have we forsaken the God of freedom? And have we taken up the bonds of Pharaoh? If Christ were to walk into our worship spaces, sign into our Zoom board meetings, would he soon be fashioning a whip of cords to clean the sacred cows from our midst? Have we given up the foolishness of the cross and embraced the wisdom of the market forces for ourselves? The pandemic has forced us as the church to pause. Our common life and our ministries had been on autopilot for God knows how long. Our calendars that were once filled with traditions and long-held habits were upended. And now, as more and more of us are vaccinated, as places reopen, as it becomes safe to gather indoors with one another again, it will be natural for us to just pick up where we left off, to resume all the old practices, because they're familiar and comfortable. And yet I believe God is at work doing a new thing even in this moment. And if we rush to get back to the old normal, we may very well miss it. So let's not blindly return to the past. Let's instead step out into God's liberating future. We can be a place, a place that proclaims freedom, true freedom in our world. We can be a people who are practicing true community, who are a voice for justice for those who have been systematically excluded for far too long. We can be a church, which is a house of prayer for all people. Let's be that church. Let's be a church which embraces the foolishness of the cross so that this whole beautiful and yet broken world might be blessed through us. May it be so. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.